It's so good to see you here on this historic day for so many reasons. Our first Sunday as sanctuary worshiping in this wonderful new space. Come on, I wish somebody could put your hands together and give God some praise. I heard a hallelujah. There's a Pentecostal in the room, be careful. <laughs> Seeing people sitting in the balcony this morning, it's a beautiful day. It's more important that it's the day Jesus rose. It's more important that our focus today be on the fact that we have a king who has conquered death. Much like the Genesis account and the stories of the origins of our world, the Easter story begins while it was still dark. And there's something about that that I think is a little bit counterintuitive or a little bit unexpected, especially with things like sunrise services on Easter. We are prone to forget, I think, that a lot of the Easter drama takes place in the dark. It doesn't take place in the bright rays of sunshine. We have to remember that before Thomas Edison's glorious invention of the light bulb, before industrialization, human beings lived their lives at the mercy of the dark. You might even remember Jesus instructing us to work while it is light. Agrarian cultures for sure understood that sunlight basically constituted a working day. There are a couple of interesting things about darkness. For those looking to hide, for those looking for anonymity, the darkness is a blessing. For those who want to do things unnoticed, darkness is a friend. For those who are vulnerable, darkness is not a friend. Darkness symbolizes uncertainty. It symbolizes the unknown. Darkness really heightens our vulnerability as human beings. It's when it's easiest for us to sleep. It's when we're least aware of our surroundings. And it's when we experience this deep sense of fear from not being able to see or understand everything that's going, around, going on around us. And on this Easter Sunday morning, Tulsa has cooperated by giving us appropriately gray, not quite dark, but a little bit on the gloomy side today, found out that it rains every Easter in Tulsa, I was told uh, this week in staff meeting. But I'm wondering if there aren't some people in the room who joined us for worship this morning, and at this, let's look at our watches, this 1040 mid-morning hour are sitting in some sort of darkness. Maybe hoping that nobody prods, presses, asks too many questions today in the gathering space. And, hey, how are you doing? Maybe you see somebody today you haven't seen for a long time. And the distance in between the last visit, a lot of things didn't go the way you hoped they would. And darkness would be a good friend to you this morning. Maybe you're in that other camp and you live with fear fear of your future, fear of the unknown surrounding you. It is in this darkness that we're introduced to our first character in John's story. Mary Magdalene has received a very unfortunate 
scandalized reputation in the Western church. I don't know, I, maybe there's somebody who, like me, you grew up being told that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Anybody, just raise your hand if you heard that story or were told that. Put it up high. It's, it's not your fault. Trust me. It's okay. Like, oh, I don't want to raise my hand. No, a lot of us were told this by very sincere people. But the fact remains that that's not in your Bible anywhere. It's disturbing to think that this woman, the one who has been referred to by many as the first apostle, the first person to announce the resurrection of Jesus, that's what apostles do. They go where the message has never been heard and they announce it. That would be Mary Magdalene. She is the apostle's apostle. Hmm. We know this much. We know that Luke tells us she was delivered by seven demons. Now, whether those seven demons were literal demons or it was figurative talk for complete oppression and torment, Either way, we know that Mary comes from a very broken, very wounded place. Mary comes from a place in the margin. You can't help but wonder if like the woman who was at the well in the middle of the day in the heat of the sun, maybe Mary Magdalene is finding her way here in the dark because she enjoys the anonymity, but maybe is also afraid of repercussions. She's recorded in all of the Gospels. She is a central figure among Jesus' followers, especially at the cross when, hello, all the gentlemen took off running, one of them naked. That's in the Bible. The prostitute is not, but the naked man is in the Bible, I promise you. It's safe to say that Mary Magdalene represents someone whose life was radically broken, but even more radically broken healed. And she apparently is very good at running. She's running. Peter's running. The other disciples running. They're racing. N.T. Wright points out, I don't know if he's joking or not, there's more running in this story than all the Gospels combined. A lot of this running into the Easter story. Mary's running and disciples are running. Now, what's interesting here is it appears as though Mary is very confident that she knows exactly what's going on. She knows two things. Jesus is dead. Two, somebody has taken him. Now, let me say this. We must not judge Mary. Would you please turn to your neighbor and say, don't judge her? Okay? And turn to your other neighbor and say, don't you judge her either, okay? Don't you judge her either. But can we just, in this, in this intimate moment, can we just sit down and humbly observe Mary together? Can we do that? Because I think Mary points to something about us that is probably painfully true. And that is, we're prone to assume we know exactly what's going on a lot of the time. She knew Jesus was 2020 hindsight moment and say, how could she think Jesus was dead? Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection for the first of three times. Listen to what happens. He began to teach them 
that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering. Did Jesus suffer already? Yes, he suffered. Okay. He must be rejected by the elders, by Jewish leadership. Has Jesus been rejected? Okay, I'm not hearing anybody, but it's all right. Uh, Rejected by the chief priests and the scribes? Yes? Okay, this has happened. Hmm. He must be killed. Has that happened? After three days, rise again. Same must. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. He must rise again. Death will not have him. The grave's arms are not long enough or strong enough to wrap around the body of the Savior and keep him in the grave. This is our Jesus. And we sit here in this 2018 setting and say, yes, yes. And Mary's like, no, no. And here's what's interesting. In verse 32, Mark notes this. Jesus said all this quite openly. And here's where we have to humbly observe Mary. How many of us have heard Jesus say plainly to us what is true of him and of us, and yet we still won't believe him? We call ourselves believers. But are we? Mary is weeping because she has misplaced her confidence. You see, she is confident that the powers have killed him. Rome had the last word. This is what Mary believes. Because she didn't come, she didn't bring coffee for Jesus. Right? She didn't come early in the dark with a tray from Starbucks. She came in the dark with spices from the funeral home because her friend was dead. You see, her expectations were that life would continue just as it always had. Her expectations were that Rome, the powers, empire itself, would have the last word. That was her expectation. That was the period to the sentence. How many of us face things in life that are so big and so far beyond this, that, but beyond us, that we just end up living in a sort of resignation? This is the way it's always going to be. Rome will always have the last word. The second misplaced confidence is in persons. Not just powers, but persons. Because what does she say? This is, this is the world's introduction to the they society. Have you ever heard of the they society? It's the people that always get blamed when something goes wrong, but we don't really have a name. Right? The they society. They have taken him. Who? They did. Your kids will introduce you to that at some point or another, I'm sure. If they have ability. Their ability to shape our lives, affect our lives. The they society stole Jesus. And this is how we lose our sense of control. But here's the reality. If Pilate put Jesus in the tomb, it is logical to assume that Pilate's soldiers could take him out of the tomb. The fact remains, Pilate did not kill Jesus. 
Pilate did not take his life. Pilate did not put him in a tomb. Earlier in John's gospel, John said this, Jesus said this, no one takes my life. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down. Whew. How many of us could use a little bit more power to lay down our lives? Anybody here besides me like the last word in the conversation? Everybody like to win arguments? Anybody besides? You're all making me feel like a horrible person. I got one friend in the front row like, yes. <laughs> Listen, friends, the power to lay down my life, I don't have it. I'm always seeking my life. But what did Jesus say? I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. See, here's the reality. She thought his body was taken. He took it up himself. It's all right. You can get excited and clap your hands on Easter. Nobody will be offended, I promise. So then why do we weep? You see, tears are not bad. But neither are they always necessary. Can I say that again? Tears are not bad, but they are not always necessary. A lot of our weeping, a lot of our sorrow is because we put confidence in powers to do evil. We put confidence in people to take over our lives. And the fact is we're weeping because we have had the wrong object of our faith. It's like the hymn writer so aptly tells us, oh, what needless pain we bear. Let's not assume that God is not powerful and God is not working. Here's what I love about God. Even when we should have been paying attention, even when we should have believed him, and our failure to do both of those things has us a pile of tears, a pool of water, a mess. I know somebody's been there with me. God says, I can work with that. God says, I can work with that. You didn't believe me. You didn't trust me. Now everything's spinning out of control. We go, you're written off. God says, I can work with that. We say, why didn't you listen to me? Hello? I told you not once. I told you three times. This was going to happen. You didn't listen. Back away from that. In the midst of tears, God works with us. Because here's the thing. You remember that other disciple who won the foot race but didn't go into the tomb? It says something really beautiful about him in John's text. It says he saw, he saw what? He saw an empty tomb. He saw and he believed but here's the odd thing about him. He went home. He looks in. He's like, he rose again. <laughs> Coffee? Anybody? I'm going to go. Right? Wow. It's kind of an odd response. to. He believed. All right. I'm at home. Like, I... But here's what, here's what I want to say. Our tears will keep us where even our belief cannot keep us. Just because we mentally get an idea, that's not enough. 
chapter in the place that the disciples walked away from. The disciples went home. I think it's worth pointing out that home is a place of comfort. Home is a place of safety. Home is a place of stability. At least it ought to be all of those things. Homes where if you're walking around wearing your shoes, it's like, where are you going? Why do you have your shoes on? Home is that comfortable place. And I feel bad for Peter and for this other nameless disciple because in their pursuit of comfort, in their quest to get home, they missed an encounter. Please hear what I'm about to say. We're so busy. We put so much effort to get out of our pain. But it's in those places that the encounters with the risen Jesus happen. Jesus didn't show up in their house. He showed up to a crying woman. If you came in here this morning in the dark, if you came here in this morning with your own sort of weeping, not literally crying, but the cloud of gloom over your life, I want to say to you, it's okay to stay there for a moment. Let your tears keep you where your beliefs may not be able to keep you. You see, the beauty of tears is that tears open us up. My grandfather passed away when I was in my late 20s, and uh, I was in the room with him when he passed. And he was maybe the closest family member I had. And my grandmother, or my mother, we were all in the hospital, and they put him in a room because they knew he was going to go. He had respiratory issues, and His breathing was incredibly labored. So you could hear every, and then that delay. My mother looked at me because I was the singer in the family. And she said, Mark, sing something. And I just looked at her like, "Uh, no, I can't sing right now. So my father, sitting on the bed next to my grandfather, starts singing. And I wept like I've never wept in my life. Of the deepest sort of loss and sorrow, listening to my father with his glorious Bill Gaither style, grotto, lilting voice, until then, our hearts will go on singing. Until then, with joy, we'll carry on. And it was like a veil between heaven and earth had opened up. And I don't know that I would have ever seen that. I don't know that I would have ever felt that if it weren't for tears. And eventually, Pop-Pop breathed in, and he didn't breathe out. That's the beauty of tears. The beauty of tears is that they liberate us from the silly concerns of maintaining our appearance. (laughs) Thank you. When you're crying, you cannot look cool. (laughs) I noticed this, and I never watched it because I'm just a little bit too old, but they just had an anniversary of Dawson's Creek. I've seen this meme. And everybody is making fun of this poor gentleman for the last 10 years that we've had memes or whatever because you cannot look cool while you're weeping. But man, it is liberating to not have to be cool. 
I was waiting for more than one amen on that one. It's liberating to be free from what people think about us. It's liberating from having to keep up this sort of image that we've got it together, that I'm not Mary Magdalene and I didn't have seven demons and my life wasn't broken apart. When you're weeping, you're not thinking about those things. When I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, I was 18 years old and I stood there in front of a big Texas evangelist who spit all over my face. All I kept saying was, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. And 40 minutes later, my shirt was wet with tears as God just had a great laugh at my own expense. And the beauty about tears is tears have a rhythm. They're just going to run their course. You stop crying when you stop crying. And the ironic beauty here is that even if Mary's tears reveal some sort of disconnect to what Jesus had said, they kept her in the garden long enough to look deeply into the place of her pain. It had changed everything for her. When we let our tears keep us there long enough, the place of pain becomes a place of holy presence. You see, because while she was weeping, it says in verse 11, she bent over, she humbled herself, she looked in, and she saw something Peter didn't see, the other disciple didn't see. She saw two angels, these two cherubim described in Exodus 25, sitting at either end of a lid of what basically is a coffin. What's interesting is this, friends, is the Ark of the Covenant. She sees something no disciple got to see. And what was in the Ark of the Covenant was the manna, Aaron's rod that had budded, and the two tablets of stone. And what's interesting is what was in between those two angels was the body of Jesus, who was the bread of life, who was the tree of life, and who was the word. You see, the fact is, in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51 is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Because it says that while Jesus was on the cross, the veil in the temple was rent from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom, from the top. From the top to the bottom, exposing the most holy place. Just happens to be the place where they kept the Ark of the Covenant. The only people that got into that space were priests. And at that high priests. Isn't it interesting that the veil has been rent and the first member of our priesthood is a woman named Mary Magdalene, who through her tears of misplaced faith bows down and looks in to see the Ark of the Covenant. The cross and the resurrection. Please hear what I'm going to say, because this is not highfalutin symbolism. This is real life. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus always transforms our places of fear and our places of loss into places of wholeness, into places of worship and great mystery. What's interesting, and the reason my sermon title is Why Are You Weeping, is because the angels say, why are you weeping? It's interesting, the angels brought her no comfort. She's still weeping through the angels. And I think she's weeping because this is personal for Mary. This is very personal for Mary. Jesus 
was gone. She had no hope before him, no health before him. He was her acceptance. He was her wholeness. He was her healing. He was her home. The disciples had somewhere to go. She had nowhere to go. These tears are like the tears I think the psalmist must have cried in Psalm 42 when he says, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you, O God. There are tears that are cried not by religious people, not by smart people, but by real people, by desperate people, by broken people, by people who don't have a home apart from Jesus, don't have a friend they can count on apart from Jesus. Without him, they can do nothing. Without him, they they surely fail. Those kinds of people, they cry different kinds of tears. They cry different kinds of tears. Comes back to us again this week. Church father, who says this, blessed is the person who de- whose desire for God has become like the lover's passion for the beloved. A person whose desire for God is so passionate, it's like the beloved's desire for another. This is not moralism. This is not be good because God's watching. This is not you better show up at church and you better work in the nursery. This is not any of that. What's beautiful about this is Jesus says, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? And she looks right at him and doesn't know. Pretty amazing. How does she know it's Jesus? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. Now this doesn't help us because we're all English speaking folk. But here's something that's been brought out about this by people who know the original languages, and that is throughout all of the Gospels, when Mary Magdalene is referenced, her name in the Greek is Maria. My guess is this is what she was known by even when she was oppressed by seven demons. Maria. Maria Magdalena. But in the garden, for the first time, probably since she was a child, Before the demons, before the brokenness, Jesus doesn't say Maria. He says Miriam. I have to believe Jesus goes into the depth of Mary's life before there was all of the mess and says, it's Miriam again. He brings new creation. He restores. When you restore a car, it's not buying a new car. It's taking something that is broken down and setting it to rights as if the rust had never happened, as if the fender bender had never happened, as if the oil leak in the head gasket had never happened. It's like back to the showroom and he is the restorer of souls. And he looks at a person this morning and says, because I got up. You're Miriam. 
Everybody's been calling you Mary. You think of yourself as Mary. I came to tell you you're Miriam again. Olivier Clement says this, only in God is human nature truly itself. God's not looking to turn us into ghosts, into spirits. He didn't dream us up to be spirits. He dreamed us up to be the men and women we are. And because of the resurrection, being a man and being a woman is not a problem anymore. See, I think instead of coming to a place of our pain and weeping in presumption, weeping in the presumption that everything's gone wrong, Rome has won, the thieves have stolen him. No, 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 no. He said, if you even have authority, it's because it's been given to you by my father. Rather than coming to the place of our pain and weeping in presumption, why don't we come to this place and weep in faith? I don't know that you came to an Easter Sunday morning service to have the preacher tell you that you can weep in faith. But I think the why of our weeping matters. Our tears have an expiration date. You know, the scriptures tell us that he bottles up our tears. It's just like a gallon of milk. That bottle of tears has an expiration date. We don't weep in despair, and we certainly don't weep in presumption, but we can be true to the pain that we feel, but still have faith. We can weep in faith because of what the prophets have said. Jesus confirms with his resurrection, Isaiah 25, he will destroy on this mountain. I love this. Jerusalem is a mountain. Golgotha is a hill. He will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. Blow up death forever. Then the Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Let's pray.